0: Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rozieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you unsure about the order of operations for making a project? Do you need just the right nail for a specific part of your project? Would you like to try hot hide glue, but you don't have a glue pot? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 48 of the show for May 1st, 2019. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And thanks to a new patron this week, Jamie Orr, for signing up to support the show. Listener support helps keep the show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to Patreon.com/BRFineWoodworking. If you're already a patron, again, I thank you, and be sure to head on over to the Patreon post page to submit your questions and requests for this month's patron Q&A video. So today's show is going to be a short one. I don't have uh, I don't have a main topic for today. So we're just gonna go ahead and answer a bunch of questions. So we'll get right into it with our first question from Scott Adams. Scott says, I just came across two things that I wanted to ask about. First, I'm making a hanging dovetail cabinet for my saws and I'm having to glue up the sides and bottoms. Do you mill and glue all your parts and then cut your joinery or just work on the piece you need next and cut joinery as you go? Second, I'm fixing to glue up a workbench top would the orientation on the growth rings make a difference in the hardness of the bench top i'm thinking the bench might be harder if the edge grain was facing up if so what would be better pursuing this or orienting the grain for maximum stability so on your first question um, i would say i typically tend to work on parts of a project at a time so um, for example if i'm if i'm making Um, A case like you're talking about I would probably glue up all the panels for the case sides first for the the sides and the bottoms um, And then cut all the joinery that that's just kind of the way that I work. I want to have all the case parts ready Um, So I would work on on subsets of parts for the whole thing Um, If you've got drawers in there I wouldn't necessarily mill all that stock up at the same time as I milled up this the stock for the case Um, But I would likely mill up all the case stock first, get that all nice and flat, um, glue those panels together, and then cut the joinery on all of those panels. Uh, As for your second uh, question on the workbench top, I don't think the orientation of the growth rings is really going to make a noticeable difference at all. Um, Scientifically or technically, uh, maybe someone might be able to make an argument that One Direction might be... Somewhat harder than another. I would expect that um, that the closer the rings are to being in the heart of the tree, they might be slightly harder than those that would be closer to the sapwood of the tree. Um, but in all honesty, I I really don't think you're going to uh, see a big difference um, practically. Um, so once you once you actually glue up the bench and you start using it. I don't think you're really going to notice a difference in in hardness, so I wouldn't worry about it so much. I would, my focus would actually wouldn't even be uh, worrying about maximum stability because um, the wood's going to move and you're not going to stop it. Um, what I would be concerned with is orienting the grain so that it's all running in the same direction when you plane it. That's going to make flattening your bench top a whole lot easier. Um, and re-flattening and and dressing it later on down the line when it gets out of flat or if it gets dirty and you want to resurface the top, having all that grain running in the same direction so that you can plane in a single direction without tear out is going to be, to me, much more important than worrying about uh, the hardness or or stability because, um, you know, in all honesty, it's just going to, you know, it's going to move. You can't stop it, so you may as well just plan for it Uh, and uh, when it does move, then you just reflatten it. But having all of those growth rings oriented in the same direction, not the growth rings, sorry, the grain running all in the same direction so that um, you don't have to worry about switching directions when you're planing, that's going to make the job of flattening the workbench top a whole lot easier. So question number two comes from our new patron, Jamie Orr. He says, I'm building a medicine cabinet out of Butternut. This is the first project where I'm not using plywood for the case, for the cabinet back. Instead, I resawed and glued up a quarter inch thick butternut panel that's 18 by 24. I'm planning to inset it into a rabbet, allowing a small amount of room for wood movement. I think I've heard that wire nails will allow for seasonal contraction and expansion, but I see that you aren't a fan of wire nails. What would you suggest? By the way, I don't need the quarter inch back to support the weight of the cabinet. I'll utilize the cabinet frame to attach it to the wall. So, uh, attaching a cabinet back. Wire nails will work. You can certainly use them. Um, And, you know, they are fairly malleable. So, they are going to allow for seasonal expansion and contraction, and they are going to bend a little bit as the wood moves. The problem I had with have with wire nails for cabinet backs, it's it's not so bad as I said. You know, as, as long as you're you're not putting any stress on there, so it it's probably not going to be too much of a problem. Um, the problem I have with wire nails is when you use them sort of in a more of a a boarded furniture style um, of construction, like a six board chest or something along those lines, where you're actually using the nails to hold parts together that could potentially be under a little bit of stress Um, in your cabinet situation the back is probably not going to be stressed to the point where it's the nail those nails are going to want to pull out and that's really the the main problem with wire nails is that they have little to no holding strength Um, if you've ever ripped um, you know done some demolition in a house and maybe replaced moldings or uh you know baseboard moldings or window casing or door casing or anything like that what you'll often find is that the when you take the molding off the wall the wire nails come right off with it um, and they they stay in the molding they pull right out so you could have you know two two and a half inch wire nails um, and they stay in the piece of molding they just they pull right out of the wall um, very easily in most cases so Um, They really just don't have a whole lot of holding power. Uh, Cut nails, on the other hand, have tons of holding power. Um, In fact, if you can do a little experiment on your own and nail a couple pieces together with cut nails, and what you'll find is that when you go to take those two pieces apart, the nail will more than likely pull through the top piece and stay stuck in the bottom piece. Uh, nine times out of ten, that's what happens. The nail doesn't usually pull out of the bottom piece, so it, it's kind of just the opposite of wire nails. They hold extremely well, and they'll they'll actually pull the head right through. Um, I mean, not, obviously not you know like a uh, a headed nail like a, a wrought um, like a rose head nail or a wrought head type of nail, but like a fine finish nail um, or a uh, a headless cut brad. Uh, they'll they'll pull the head right through the piece of wood um, and the the nail will s- still be stuck in the bottom piece So um, they're very difficult to pull out. So that's really why I prefer the wire for the uh, the cut nails rather For your case piece like I said, it'll it'll probably be fine just to nail the back on because that back is most likely not Going to see a whole lot of stress uh, You know, you'll probably be hanging it from a French cleat or something like that so that's really going to take the weight. The cabinet back really isn't going to take much of the weight. So you know, if you didn't want to go out and get cut nails for for that, um, you know, I think your wire nails would work just fine. If you are going to go out and uh, and use cut nails, I will typically use a couple different styles depending on how I want the piece to look. Um, if it's something that's going to hang on a wall, I'll usually just use um, some fine um fine finish nails some cut fine cut finish nails um and depending on the thickness of the back um you know that they might be from uh four penny four penny to six penny usually usually more like a three or four penny for um for a cabinet back Um, however in a freestanding piece where the back might be visible oftentimes i will use the wrought head nails because they're a little bit more decorative they look like hand forged nails Um, and you know if it's going to be a freestanding piece and the back of the case might sometimes be visible then i like to use those nails because i think they they show up a little bit better and you know they're they're a little bit more decorative than the the fine finish nails so today's third question comes from tyler finn he says i want to use hot hide glue and sinew to fix an arrow i'm a younger listener and while i do have a job resources are tight and i don't have a glue pot can i just take some boiling water off the stove and pour it over the glue granules so tyler i've got an even better solution for you Um, you absolutely do not need a glue pot at all Uh, you can you can essentially make a double boiler from um, you know something you probably have in the recycling bin already and a regular saucepan that you have in the kitchen um, you don't need a dedicated glue pot. I wouldn't use boiling water because uh, we, tend, we try to keep the temperature of the hide glue around 140 to 150 degrees. Once you start to get the glue over that temperature, which boiling water is going to take a few minutes to come down in temperature after you turn the heat off, um, it's still going to be hot enough to start to break down the proteins in that glue. And that is going to weaken the bond. And especially in something like attaching an arrowhead, uh, to an arrow shaft with with hide glue and sinew um, i would say you want the most strength that you can get out of that glue so you don't want to overheat it so i wouldn't recommend just pouring, pouring boiling water over the granules what i would do instead is go into your recycling bin and find an old glass jar it could be a jelly jar um, anything whatever whatever is in the recycling bin but it try to get something made out of glass um wash it out real good clean it uh clean it and rinse it out real good put your glue granules into that jar get yourself a saucepan out of the cupboard the cabinet put some water in that saucepan and put that saucepan on your stove over low heat then take your jelly jar full of glue granules put that in the saucepan uh, cover those glue granules with with cool water and let them let the glue absorb that water, swell up, um, and, and probably let the, uh, the glue absorb the water for about a half an hour before putting it into the saucepan over the heat. And then you're going to bring it up to temperature slowly over, um, over a low flame or, or low heat on your cooktop. What this is going to do is it's going to bring the glue up to temperature gradually, so it's going to heat it more thoroughly and more evenly throughout. It's going to give you time to stir it and mix it as it's coming up to temperature. Um, and it's going to give you a little bit more control over the process. Um, no need to go out and buy a, a special uh, a special glue pot. Essentially all a glue pot is is a double boiler, which you can make from a saucepan and a jelly jar or, or any glass jar. Uh, and the benefit of the glass jar is it's got a lid. You can once that glue cools down put the lid on it put it in the refrigerator and that glue will last for weeks and you can continue to reheat it and use it for quite a while uh, after it cools down as long as you keep it refrigerated most glue pots don't have the ability to do that so a lot of people will even even those that have a dedicated glue pot um, will often you know heat their glue and mix their glue in a jelly jar so that they can put that lid on and put it in the refrigerator and extend the working time the the working life of that glue uh, and continue to use it for weeks and weeks rather than uh, having a mix of glue that's sitting at room temperature and is probably only going to last a few days before you end up having to throw it out so give that a try Uh, i think you'll be quite happy with the process our fourth question comes from john hughes John says, I have a question on files, specifically saw sharpening files. They seem to come in four different sizes, from regular to double extra slim, and also in different lengths. Does the length have any bearing on sharpening, or is it just a comfort thing? I think I understand why you would want a bigger size to sharpen saws with low teeth per inch, but what's the benefit of the finer sizes? Wouldn't a bigger file still sharpen a saw with high teeth per inch? What size would you recommend for a complete beginner sharpening a tenon saw? Also, can I use a saw file to sharpen an auger bit? Okay. So John, if you you just do a Google search for saw file sizes, you're likely to find several tables of file sizes that will tell you what size file to use for what size teeth. you're partially correct when you say they, they come in four different sizes. They actually come in a lot more than four different sizes. They come in four different tapers, and then they come in those tapers, they also come in multiple lengths. But not every manufacturer offers every taper in every length. Usually you'll have a four inch, five inch, six inch, seven inch, uh, eight inch. All the way up, I think I've got one that's uh, 11 or 12 inches for for my really big um, frame saw. Um, And then tapers, you usually have regular, uh, slim taper, extra slim, and double extra slim. And those tapers could come in any one of the different sizes. Usually the um, the larger files tend to not get into the extra slim and double extra slim. Um, once you get above six inches, seven inches, um, you know you'll usually have like regular and slim taper, and that's about it. Um, here's the thing. there there's definitely some overlap. Um, but the length does play into what size teeth that file can be used to file. the The issue what what the issue comes down to is the radius of the corners of that triangular file. So a tapered saw sharpening file is not technically a true triangle. A true triangle would have three sharp points on each of the corners. A tapered saw file doesn't actually come to a sharp point. If it did come to a sharp point, the teeth at that sharp point would really just break off. They'd be so fragile that they just wouldn't uh, they wouldn't have any strength. So they would just break off when you tried to use that file. So if you take a close look at a saw sharpening file, the corners are actually either a slight flat or a slight radius. Um, it's the smaller the file, the smaller that flat is to actually see. Um, but in, a, in the larger files, if you look closely, you can notice that the corner of that file is not a true corner. It's actually a small radius or a small flat the larger the file gets the larger that radius gets so what happens is the the radius at the bottom of the gullet of the tooth gets larger and when the radius of the of the gullet of the tooth gets larger the gullet loses depth so in a saw with really large teeth it's not so much of an issue When you start to get into smaller saws, like the tenon saw that you're looking to sharpen, like dovetail saws, if you try to use a file that's too big, that large radius at the bottom of the file creates a very small, shallow tooth. Um, And in some cases, you'll essentially just file away most of the tooth because the radius of the file is so large that it's not allowing you to bring the teeth to a nice, sharp point. The other problem is it makes the gullets too shallow and they can't carry away the sawdust and then the teeth tend to clog and the saw binds up or starts to drift in the cut or just doesn't cut efficiently. So there are reasons to use different size files. And um, again, if you look online, there there are plenty of tables for what size of saw file you should use for what size teeth. So just take a look at your tenon saw. See how many teeth per inch you have in that tenon saw. And then Google your your saw sharpening file table or your saw sharpening file sizes um, and see what size file you would need. You can even go to to, uh, retailers that sell saw sharpening files like Tools for Working Wood, Lee Valley, Lee Nielsen. Um, uh, You mentioned you're in Ireland, so you might want to check some of the UK dealers that sell saw, uh, saw sharpening files they're all going to have recommended file sizes for the number of teeth prints you have your typical tenon saw is usually going to be about 12 to 13 points per inch um, i tend to use uh, i think it's a, a five inch double extra slim for um, for teeth of that size um, it it has the, the file comes to enough of a point. So the the radius of the corner of the file is small enough that the teeth aren't too shallow, um, but it's not super small. Um, you know, the, the file is not super small, so it gives you a, a longer, slightly longer file stroke. Uh, but as I mentioned, there's going to be a little bit of overlap as well. So, um, but yeah, definitely look, just look online and you'll, for sure find a table with the proper file size for the number of teeth per inch of the saw that you wanna sharpen and just stick to that file size um, and for that size of sawtooth and you should be just fine. As for the second part of your question, uh, yes, you certainly can use a saw file to sharpen an auger bit. Uh, What you might find is that in these smaller auger bits, you might have a hard time getting a saw file into um, the cutting flutes. Not so much the uh, the spurs on the bottom, but the flutes that actually the, the lips that actually do the cutting um, and removing the waste on the on the inside of the hole, not the not the scoring spurs on the outside, but the inside cutting lips. Um, you may have a hard time getting a soft file into that space and your smaller auger bits. It'll be just fine for the larger auger bits. Uh, but for the smaller auger bits, you might still find that you need to, to get yourself an auger bit file. Uh, because uh, even the, a 4-inch double extra slim is probably going to have a hard time um, getting into the space, into the flutes, on an auger bit of you know a number four or number five auger bit when you start to get that small uh, so you still might need a uh, you still might need an auger bit file for the really small auger bits so our last question for today comes from tom in ohio and tom sent in a, a voice memo he recorded a voice memo on his phone um, and which which is great i i love it when when folks do that but what he did is he he sent it to the voicemail number as a text message and unfortunately so I use uh, Google Voice for my voicemail for the voicemail line um, and it doesn't do so well with text messages. I can get text messages through the Google Voice but when you attach an audio, file an audio recording to that text message and send it to the google voice voicemail um, it doesn't work so well um, as a text message i'm not able to download the file to be able to include it in the auto podcast so um, if you're going to uh, record a voice memo on your phone which i hope you will um, instead of sending it to instead of texting it to the voicemail number email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com and i'll be able to just download um the I'll, i'll be able to download the voice the um the voice memo file the audio file right from email as a text message um it doesn't go through so well it's not so straightforward to download and i couldn't figure out how to actually extract the uh voice file from that. So I apologize, Tom, that I'm not playing your your voice memo, your voicemail that you, uh, you know, spent so much time recording. But I am going to paraphrase Tom's question. Um, Essentially, he wants to flatten his commercially manufactured workbench. Um, He's tried several years ago, but he got a lot of tear out. Um, He's a better sharpener now and much better versed with his hand planes, but he's still reluctant to plane the bench top. His alternative is to use a flattened one and a half inch thick mahogany slab as a planing beam by clamping it between the dogs of the commercial bench because his bench is against the wall and he can't really plane across the grain or diagonally to avoid tear out. And he's looking for some help and some solutions on what to do. So, um... There's a couple problems trying to flatten those commercial workbenches with hand planes. Um Most of them are, are beach, so I, I, it sounded like the one you were, um, you were you were talking about was one of the older uh, German-made, I think you mentioned, uh, the, the older German-made um, beach workbenches like the old Olmia workbench. Um, They have laminated beach tops. They're they're really beautiful benches. The problem is that when those benches were made, they laminated those tops and most likely just ran them through a really wide sander. Uh, And that's how they flattened and and got everything coplanar. The issue with that is that the sanders don't care about grain direction. Hand planes do. Um, and as I mentioned in my earlier response to um, to Scott's question, who's trying to glue up a workbench top, um, grain direction is really important when it comes to hand planing. So it's more likely that the tear out was not so much a result of your hand planing. Um, you know that you didn't know how to sharpen, or I mean, it, it could have played a, a little bit of a factor. Um, but what I think the bigger problem is, is that when they glued up the laminations for those commercial workbenches, they really didn't pay any attention to grain direction. So what you end up with is essentially like a an edge grain butcher block that has grain running in both directions. So one lamination could have grain running from left to right, and the lamination right next to it could be running from right to left so when you try to plane that one one of the laminations planes nice and easy and the other one tears out because the grain is running in opposite directions so i think you're going to have a problem no matter how well you sharpen and how good you are with your hand planes i think you're still going to have a problem trying to plane the top of one of those benches um, Because of that change in grain direction The solution that I would suggest would be to go ahead and resharpen your plane blades Um, You know do it with a a, a triplane or joiner plane Sharpen the blade nice and sharp and you're gonna have to take a very light shaving and Get that chip breaker in that plane as close to the cutting edge as you possibly can. I mean you just want to see a hair of cutting edge behind the chip breaker and the closer you can get the chip breaker to the cutting edge the better job that chip breaker is going to do um, in reducing the amount of tear out that you're going to get you still may get a little bit of tear out because again you are going to be planing against the grain and there's not going to probably be any way to avoid that without planing across the green. Um, and you mentioned that you couldn't do that because of the, the tool well on the back and because the bench is up against the wall. Um, I'd still see if maybe you could pull the bench away from the wall just for the, the time that you're, um, re-flattening the top, but, um, you're going to need to go lengthwise along the, the, uh, along the top anyway to, to get it truly flat. So, um, yeah, the, the, the best advice I can give you is to try and take a very, very thin cut and get the chip breaker as close to the cutting edge as you possibly can, like you would you know, for a really finely set up smoothing plane. And it's going to take longer to do that way, but I think that's going to be your best bet in um, minimizing, I, I won't say avoiding, because I think you're going to have a hard time avoiding tear out in those laminated tops. Uh, but I think... If you can get the chip breaker as close to the cutting edge as possible with a really sharp blade and a really light cut, I think you'll do the best job you can to minimize that tear out um, in one of those tops with alternating grain. Um, As for your solution of the the mahogany planing beam, um, that could certainly work. Um, In my eyes, one and a half inches is still a little thin, unsupported um if you've got a you know first i mean obviously check your bench and see you know if you're having problems getting things flat and you you think it might be because of because your workbench is not flat you know that's a reason to go ahead then and flatten your workbench but um i wouldn't go through the trouble of flattening the workbench or making a planing beam um if the bench isn't really giving you any problems. If you, if you can do the work you need to do and you can flatten boards that you need to flatten and joint boards that you need to joint, um, I don't really see the need to go and, and reflatten the workbench just as, as a, a matter of, of course. Um, I know you said it's never been flattened and you've had the workbench for a good number of years. I've had my workbenches for a good number of years as well and I've never flattened them Um, but I can, I still find that I can do, um, the the work that I do on them is, is perfectly fine. You know, I can still flatten boards. I can still joint edges, um, and things come out flat and straight and square. So, um, I've never felt the need to flatten a workbench re or I should say reflatten my workbenches. Um, if I start to have problems, and the workbench isn't functioning for me because it's not flat, that's a whole different story. Um, But I wouldn't go to the trouble of making a planing beam or or reflattening the workbench just for the sake of doing so, not unless you're having trouble that requires you to go ahead and reflatten that bench. Um, But back to the the planing beam, um, I think it's a viable option, but at one and a half inches, I would be concerned that it's still going to flex a little bit. Um, you know, your workbench top is probably, you know, two and a half, three inches thick, um, to, to minimize that, that flex or eliminate that flex. One and a half inches is not really all that thick and mahogany is not a real rigid wood. So, um, I'm not sure that that's going to solve your problem. If you, if your bench is truly out of flat and it's causing a problem, then, I'm not sure that putting a piece of one and a half inch thick mahogany on top is going to solve that problem. Maybe it will. But if you were able to get that piece of mahogany dead flat on your current workbench, then I would say you're probably okay. And you probably don't need to flatten your workbench. So, uh, so, you know, think about that and and take that into consideration as well. Um, if you're just looking to clean up the workbench and, and that's why you're, you know, you want to quote unquote, flatten it. You just to, you know, take the, the, the dirt and the grime and the, you know, the, the wear off the surface. Um, you can do that with a, a cabinet scraper or uh, or just a card scraper and clean it up and put a new coat of finish on the top. Um, but I wouldn't go through the trouble of totally reflattening it unless you're having problems using the bench because um, because it's out of flat. So I would definitely check it first to make sure it's out of flat Um, and see if, you know, see if it really needs it and and not necessarily flatten it just for the sake of flattening it. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this. I'm extremely grateful for all the support you've all provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to Bob at brfinewoodworking.com You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 Or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show And you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. You'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.